Okay, so let's begin. The, the uh, series of lectures for this year will be about heroes and villains of modern Jewish history. And uh, I'll preface my remarks by saying that there's a long list of people who could be included in a roster of names of heroes and villains, uh, some more famous than others. And I'm not going to necessarily cover some of the most famous people because I want to include those who are a little bit you know, less known and where we could have some uh, enjoyment of the chidushim involved, the novelty involved. Some characters are clearly heroes. They might have risked their lives for the sake of Am Yisrael or done something of great importance. Others are clearly villains, whether they were Nazi collaborators or assimilationists who tried to destroy Judaism uh, and the like. But of course, in the villain category, I'm not going to include anti-Semites who were, who were Gentiles, who were our adversaries, only Jews who, who did something contrary to the interests of, uh, of our group. Uh, but other characters are going to be a bit ambiguous. It depends upon who you ask. Are they a hero or are they a villain? Uh, tonight's individual will certainly fall into that category. Um, and I will try to avoid, to the best of my ability, anything that's outright lush and horror about more contemporary characters and just try to assess things from a historical point of view. And what I'm also not going to do over the course of the year is to give an ideological bent that is too blatant or obvious, meaning... Uh, if someone has a hashkafic point of view, a philosophical point of view that is uh, very traditionalist, that doesn't make them a hero. And if they're a, a reformer or, or an enlightened thinker, it doesn't make them a villain. Uh, I'm going to focus more on, on people's character, what they did, whether whether their deeds were in the better interests of uh, B'nai Yisrael, uh, our people, or not. Okay, so tonight's lecture will be about the Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Yol Teilbaum, Rabbi Joel. And we'll go through his, his uh, biography in chronological sequence and then ask a few pointed questions about his uh, world view and where he, why he was regarded as a heroic figure by some and possibly as a villain by others. Okay. So Rabbi Yoel is born on January 13th, 1887 in Sigit in Hungary. Just as a matter of geography, where is Sigit? Is it in Hungary? No, it's in Romania. But Romania doesn't really exist at that point. So in, in 1887, um, you have a, the, the Kingdom of Hungary is at that point part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg Empire. And so therefore, the Sigurd Jews are known as, at that point as Hungarian Jews. Later, they'll be identified as Romanian Jews. Uh, his father is Hananya Yomtov Teitelbaum, who occupies three positions in the Sigurd community. And this requires a bit of explanation. Chananya Yom Tov is the Rav of the town, the Rabbi of the town. He is the Rosh Yeshiva of the local academy. And he's also the local Hasidic Rebbe. Each of those positions is a distinct position, not to be confused with the others, even though sometimes one man occupied all three. The rabbi of the town is the person who is hired by the community, often requires governmental consent, to be the official uh, religious authority of the town to decide matters of ritual law. That person might also occasionally give a sermon in the, in the shul, you know, Shabbos HaGadol, Shabbos Shuva, but basically he is the decider of Jewish law and the, the head of the local uh, uh, legal rabbinic court. The Rosh Yeshiva is the head of the academy. Now, not every town in, in, in Europe, Central Eastern Europe, had a yeshiva. Some did. If there was a substantial enough community and they might have gotten students only locally, they might have had students come from far away. The Rosh Yeshiva is the chief academic officer. 
the Rebbe, the Hasidic Rebbe, is a very unofficial position. You're a Rebbe if what? If you have Hasidim, if you have followers. Um, is there necessarily a Rebbe in every town? No, because some towns were thoroughly misnagdic in nature, others were mixed. In the mixed town, typically the Rebbe was not also the Rav. In dominantly, uh, predominantly Hasidic towns, it was quite common for the Rebbe to also be the Rav of the town. In Sigit, which had a significant Hasidic population, the title bomb was the, both the Rabbi and the Rebbe. Okay. Uh, his son, Yoel, was the youngest of five children. Uh, the second son, actually from a second marriage. Uh, in the case of the, fa- the father, there was actually a hetermeir rabbonim because one of the previous, I think one of the first wife died, and this another wife uh, refused a divorce, and she couldn't bear children, and there, was a, there were multiple marriages uh, for Rabbi father. He was the last child born. And uh, he was very fastidious in his religious observance from an early age. He was also very fastidious in matters of hygiene, personal hygiene, to the point of being OCD. Uh, and he conflated personal hygiene with matters of spiritual tumavatara, purity and impurity. They were basically one and the same for him throughout his life, to the point that during the war years and times of danger, he would actually trade food, food rations for toilet paper. The toilet paper was considered very important to him. That physical cleanliness, going to the bathroom before davening, was an obsession of his. Okay. Now, in 1904, at the age of 17... He married Chava Horowitz, who was the daughter of a prominent uh, regional rabbi. And he received smicha from eight different rabbanim, including fairly prominent rabbis in Transylvania. His father, Hananya Yom Tov, died very shortly after uh, Rabbi Yol's wedding. And when his father died, that left a, a significant question to be answered. Who inherits the family positions? Because as was typically the case in Hungary and other parts of Eastern Europe, if uh, a rabbi had scholarly children who didn't go off the derech and become maskilim or or apostates, if the child was of the rabbi was uh, a reasonably learned character, you could rest assured that one of those boys was going to inherit the family business of being the rabbi of the town, and certainly the rebbe. The rub of the town, sometimes that was a matter for, uh, for a vote and for hiring someone from the outside who was more competent, but the Rebbe was usually a dynastic issue, a hereditary dynasty. So who was going to inherit these positions? The answer is the oldest child is typically the one who gets the position. So Chaim Tzvi, who was the oldest son, he inherited his father's uh, mantle, um, despite the fact that he was not as... Uh, well-regarded scholastically or in terms of piety, as was his younger brother, Yoel. So there were those in the community who wanted Yoel to be the rabbi and the rebbe, and supposedly, at least according to the sources, his own mother wanted him to be the rebbe. So, in a rare example of Yoel not pressing the fight uh, too strenuously, he decided to walk away from the controversy, let his brother take over, and for a year he lived in Galicia with his father-in-law. In September 1905, Yoel moved to Satmar. Satmar is about uh, 50, uh, well, no, it's about uh, 50 kilometers from Sigit. And why did he move there? It was an opportunity for creating a name for himself. There was a rabbi in Satmar. I mean, it was a community of 1,200 Jews. 
And there even was a supposed Rebbe of Satmar, someone who was a charismatic figure who claimed the title of Rebbe. But Yoel could walk on in with a few supporters and announce that he is the Satmar Rebbe. And so it is claimed that he began referring to himself as a Rebbe in Satmar 1905 at the age of 18. One of the first things that his people did, and this goes uh, down in the, the lore of, uh, of Satmar uh, Hasidut, is that um, there was an act of vandalism shortly after he arrived on the scene. There was a mikveh being built for women that was not that far from the mikveh that already existed for men. And so Rabbi Oil, ever the, the vigilant character on all matters of Tznius, decided that this was inappropriate. They were too close. There could be, uh, who knows, someone could see something. So he objected. But who was he? He was a little upstart, 18-year-old kid who's from the outside. His opinion doesn't matter. The communal authorities matter. The local rav matters. And when he didn't get his way, one night his goons tore down the, the mikveh under construction. Now, why do I tell this story? Aside from that it's one of the famous juicy stories about the early years of Satmar, the answer is it tells you uh, the feisty character of Rabbi Yoel, his willingness to uh, throw his weight around even before he had weight to throw around. And that sometimes the language of militarism will manifest itself in a physical way, not just in terms of idle threats and words on paper. The notion of milchama, war, appears in the Torah many times, in the Talmud many, many times. There is a concept uh, known as milchamet mitzvah, and there's another concept as milchamet reshut, obligatory war, an optional war, and the Talmud goes out of its way to define what is an obligatory war. It's a war of defense uh, of Bnei Yisrael against our enemies. It's a war of conquest of Eretz, Eretz Canaan against the Canaanites. It's a war of uh, you know the eternal conflict with Amalek. What is an optional war? An optional war is when you want to expand the borders of Eretz Yisrael, so you go fight against the guys who live on the other side of the Jordan River or who live in Syria. And King David did such things. So, milchemet reshut we don't do, but milchemet mitzvah, we always have to do it. Vigilant in the defense of Am Yisrael. In the history of Satmar, actually even before it was known as Satmar, even when it was known as the Sigr Hasidus, the Teitelbaum family has long believed in milchemet mitzvah, or milchemet chovah, obligatory war. And on three occasions, over a hundred year span, there was a book published called Milchemet Mitzvah. Sefer Milchemet Mitzvah. The first one was in 1887, actually the year Yoel was born. Uh, so you can't blame him. But his, fa- his father and his father's uh, compatriots waged a battle against the status quo communities. What is a status quo community? Anyone familiar with that term? So in Hungary, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, but in Hungary in particular, there was a, st- a very sharp divide between the Orthodox and the Neolog. The Neolog are like the Reform or the, cons- or the Conservative, the non-Orthodox. And in, com- in some communities, the divide was so sharp that the Orthodox would secede from the official community, known as the, by the word Auschwitz, the German word Auschwitz, to, to separate yourself and have your own community, if the Neolog were in charge and were establishing religious matters along their lines. But in other places, 
there was a desire for a communal unity and not to have totally separate institutions, maybe separate synagogues, but otherwise co- communal unity, and that would be known as the status quo, that we don't change things from as they were. We don't break off into d- d- distinct groups, but rather we're one kihila and we keep the status quo, whatever it was. So for the, for the extremists, the status quo is like a disgrace. It's, it's just as bad as if you were an eolog. You have to be very fervently orthodox with no accommodation whatsoever uh, for our religious adversaries. So Sefer Melchamed Mitzvah in the 1880s was a fight against uh, those communities which were insufficiently uh, uh, zealous in, in, in preserving orthodox distinct, uh, distinctiveness. The second case of Sefer Melchamed Mitzvah was in 1928, which we'll get to soon enough, uh, in a fight over who gets to become the rabbi of Satmer, uh, with the side favoring Rabbi Yoel, saying this is a religious war to win in the, in the election. Now, at last I remember, it's a couple of years ago, when Rav, uh, when Rav Lau Jr. won the election in Israel, it was hotly contested with Rav Stav. But nobody wrote a book calling it, it was a religious war, Mechamis Mitzvah, to defeat the other side. So you see, it's very partisan in nature, very fiery in nature. The third time there was a Sefer Mechamis Mitzvah was in 1984. Rabbi Yol was already long dead. And the issue was over a public school, a, a so-called school district in Kiryas Joel, upstate. If you remember, I was too young to remember these things at the time, uh, that Mario Cuomo was very much in favor of establishing a public school system in Curious Joel in order to uh, allow for special needs children to have education uh, funded by the state. The problem was the Supreme Court decided this was an an inappropriate infringement of separation of church and state issues, and so in the end it didn't exist. But the the real fiery uh, extremist said, it's a disgrace, it's a a busha, it's a cherpa to have a public school in Curious Joel. No such thing. If we have special needs children, we'll pay out of pocket to have a yeshiva for them, not a New York State-funded secular institution. So I just give these as examples of the, the fiery nature, the, the, the militaristic nature of Satmer. And although those are just books and words on a page, sometimes it's more than words on a page. It's knocking down a mikvah in 1905 in, in, in Satmer. Okay. Well, Rabbi is there from 1905 uh, to 1911. And he doesn't have official position, but he's gaining renown. And he's gaining adherence. Some of uh, the community there is, uh, enjoys his uh, anti-modern uh, approach to the world, and they like the idea that someone, some rabbinical figure, is pushing back against the forces of modernity, assimilation, and Zionism. Because Zionism in the nineteen, uh, the first few decades of the twentieth century is becoming popular in Eastern Europe, even among the Orthodox, with the founding of Mizrahi, uh, and also other Zionist organizations. So, what is Rabbi Yoel's approach to things? He is a firm believer that Zionism is a, big, is a cardinal sin, and unlike the, the Aguda, which doesn't yet exist but will come on the scene soon, the Aguda will object to Zionism on the grounds that the movement is run by secular Jews and the state they would like to establish will be insufficiently religious. Yoel, that's not his position. He says even if it were run by very pious Jews with long beards and big yarmulkes, it wouldn't matter. Because only God can provide salvation for our people. No human effort uh, in the direction of redemption has any legitimacy. 
it is a, 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 a heresy because it shows that you lack belief in God's saving grace. Okay? Now, uh, Rabbi Yoel stays uh, till 1911, where he bec- at which point in time he becomes the rabbi of Irshava, or Ilsova, depending upon which language you want to pronounce it. Um, and upon becoming the rabbi of a town, he now has official responsibilities. It's one thing to be a firebrand rebbe who can spout off whatever you want to say. It's quite another to have responsibilities as the chief rabbi of a town. But he doesn't seem to like Yeshava all that much. And in 1914, when things get a little dangerous because World War I is starting, he moves back to Satmar, which was out of the war zone. So for his own issue of personal safety, he picks himself up and walks away. This will become a common theme in Rabiola's life, that he doesn't like to be in, in, in uh, places of, of physical danger. And his own personal well-being will trump all other matters, including the well-being of his community, for which he would be sharply criticized later in life. Okay, so in 1914 he goes back to Satmar, where he remains until 1920. In 1920, Satmar is no longer part of Hungary, it is now part of Romania. Why? The answer, at the end of World War I, the losers of World War I lose in the diplomatic struggle. Anyone who was on the side of Germany will uh, have territories... uh, taken away from them and ceded to the victorious side. So interwar Hungary was a very small country compared to pre-World War I Austro-Hungary, which was very, very large. So Romania becomes a geographically robust uh, regime. Um, and Sigit and Satmar and all these towns are now part of Romania. Okay. In 1920, the Rav and Satmar died. So, who had been the Rav? Yehuda Greenwald, Grunwald. Rabbi Yoel decides, I want to run for office. This would be a major coup to not only be someone who is regarded as a Satmar Rebbe, but also the Rav of the town. Well, he runs for office, but is fiercely opposed by all the modern Orthodox, by the Zionists, and even some of the Hasidim who didn't like Rabbi Yoel's... Uh, extremism, and or they didn't like the fact that he tried to uh, sh- uh, elbow his way in to the, uh, to the detriment of other Hasidic courts who were nearby. That it became a, a turf war even among the Hasidim, forgetting the Misnagdim. Okay. So, Rabbi Yol runs for office and loses. Yeah. Among the Hasidim themselves, yes. aren't there different philosophical ways of approaching things? Yes, there are. Isn't that part of the whole issue in a way? Okay, so the the Hasidim Okay. So the Hasidim of Poland had very different attitudes from the Hasidim of Hungary, Transylvania, Romania. Um, and certainly the Lubavitch had a different attitude altogether on, on almost everything from the, all the other Hasidim. Uh, the Hasidus of Congress Poland and the Pale was happy. The Hasidus of Transylvania was just rigid. It was, n- it was a way of, in, in Transylvania, of preserving the mythical past that may or may not ever have existed, but was, was adamant that we will preserve this past through um, religious stringency, certain you know, sartorial approaches, uh, the, the, the garb, 
that actually didn't even date back all that long, to be honest, the Strymel. Um, it was a conscious decision in the Hasidus of Transylvania to reject all modern elements of life, as opposed to in Poland and the Pale, where it was just an alternative uh, to being a misnagid. It was a way of being religious for people who were going to be religious anyway, but with a more jovial approach to things, and less of an emphasis on Talmud Torah, except for Lubavitch, who established the yeshiva Tomchei Tamimim and had a focus on, on Torah learning. Okay, So, most of the community opposes him, and instead, the winner of the election is Eliezer David Grunwald, who was not related to the previous Rabbi Grunwald. In, in, in Hungary and Romania, there were many, many rabbis with the same last name. So just because two guys might be back-to-back as chief rabbi of a town, it doesn't always mean it was father and son. Like, the, there were 300 ra- rabbis named Jungreis. Uh, the Rebbitson used to say that, uh, that everybody's name was Jungreis back in the old country. It's true. There were only like a handful of rabbinical names, but they weren't necessarily related. Okay. Uh, in 1922... Joel, goes, having lost the election, goes back to Irshava, where he was the rabbi, which was now in Czechoslovakia. Remember, the borders had been moving around after the war, and now Czechoslovakia, as a newly founded state, has many, many Hasidim in the eastern provinces uh, beyond Slovakia, in the subcarpathian Ruthenian sections of the country. In 1925, Rabiol is appointed as a, the Rav of Karai, uh, back in Romania. And in 1926, he takes up his position... But something else happened in 1926. His brother, Chaim Tzvi, died unexpectedly at a relatively young age. And when his brother died, so now the, the, the position in Sigit, which was the family position, is available. But who's going to get it? Did Chaim Tzvi have a son? Chaim Tzvi did have a son, Yekusiel Yehuda, a good Hasidic name. But how old was Yekusiel Yehuda? Huh? How old was he? He was 14. Now, can a 14-year-old boy become a rabbi? I ask you. This question actually came up in Israel but a couple of years ago. There was a kid in yeshiva, a 14-year-old kid, who passed all the, the smicha exams for Rabbanut, and they didn't want to give him the smicha because he's too young. He's not mature enough yet. They said he has to wait a few years, uh, even though he passed all the exams. So, and that's assuming the guy knows what he's doing. But a 14-year-old kid who just happened to be the son of the Rav and the Rebbe, does it mean he's qualified for taking on communal leadership? Of course not. But hereditary dynasty means more than anything else. Therefore, your good little Yakusa Yehuda is going to become the Rav of Sigit at 14 years old. 1926. But there'll be a caretaker, older authority supervising him to make sure nothing goes wrong. That's right, a reasonable uh, a compromise. Is Yoel happy about that? Not really. I mean, here he's now a 40-year-old man who's been the rub of a town for the last decade and a half. He's got Rebbe credentials. And his 14-year-old nephew is going to be taking over the job. It's a bit of a patch in the punum to Rabbi Yoel. I, but he didn't so much contest it because on the ground in Sigit, the Hasidim were now recognizing Yoel as the Rebbe, not the 14-year-old kid. They weren't giving pidyonis and, and asking for brachas from the 14-year-old. They were going off to Shava or to Karai to, to, to Rabbi Yoel because he was their real Rebbe. Okay. Now, uh, in 1928, Grunwald, the rabbi of Satmar, who had been appointed only eight years earlier, died. So these Rabbi Grunwalds are dying fast and furious. So again, there's a job available. And Yoel runs for office. So he's the Rav in Karai. He wants to be the Rav of Satmar. 
So the board takes it to a vote. And this time, things were more favorable towards Rabbi Yoel. He won the vote 19 to 5 with two, two abstentions. But the five who were against were vehemently against. And Yoel is a politically savvy guy. He knows he can't show up on the scene with just 19 votes of board members without popular support. So what does he do? He says, let's go to a membership vote. So they go to the membership vote. And the vote was 437 to 331. Now, that's, that, that's a winning vote. But there's still 331, which is a significant percentage who doesn't like him. And they really don't like him. So he calls for another vote. <coughs> this reminds me, Lahavdil, 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 and I don't want to make any comparisons, but I'll make the comparison. Who called for another vote after winning? The Nazis. In, in, in March of 1933, they won the January vote, but it was a relatively co- close call. So having taken the reins of power as the chancellor, Hitler calls for another vote, and then it's a rigged election, and he wins big, and then he throws out Hindenburg and takes the job of... Uh, of uh, well, he's, he's uh, uh, president, and then he becomes chancellor. Um, so they, go, they call for another vote. The president of the community was a, was a fan of Rabbi Yoel, and he tinkered with the uh, eligibility rights for voting. So there was, like, uh, there was fraud perpetrated by the communal board in terms of who was allowed to vote. So in the end, what was the, the, the total? 779 to 1. <laughs> now, this was clearly uh, rigged, and y'all still knows that there's opposition. So what does he do? His faction even before he arrives on the scene, secedes from the Kihila in 1929 as a way of improving its negotiating position because by seceding from the Kihila, the, the, uh, the remnant of the official Kihila would have insufficient numerical and financial strength to survive. And they would need the breakaway people to come back in order to be financially viable. And if they want them to come back, under what condition? That Yoel's the Rebbe and the Rav of the town. And that's exactly what happens. So finally, in 1934, Yoel shows up on the scene as the Rav of Satmar. So in, in, uh, in, in the uh, posthumous legacy of Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, what is he? Is he the Satmar Rebbe or the Satmar Rav? He is known as the Satmar Rav. Even though he was first the Rebbe, in 1905, he is known by his own group, not as the Rebbe, but the Satmar Rav, because from 1933 to 1944, he was the Rav in Satmar. Okay. But before he got there, he actually took a little side trip. In 1932, he went to Eretz Royal. He went to Palestine. And while he was there, uh, Rav Dushinsky died. And he was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Dushinsky? Dushinsky. It's Yosef Dushinsky. And there was an attempt made by the uh, Hungarian Hasidim in Yerushalayim to make Rabbi Yoel the chief, rab- chief Ashkenazic rabbi of Yerushalayim. That, huh? that, well, that, that attempt failed in part because Rav Cook was against it and in part because uh, the Jewish agency was against it. They, they knew full well his uh, strong-worded opposition to Zionism and... Did he want 
it's unclear whether he personally really, really wanted it or just people on his team, his handlers, would have enjoyed him occupying that position. It's, it's, it's unclear. But certainly people who supported him wanted him to hold that, that office. And it would have been a, a, a major step up. From uh, At that point, he wasn't even yet the Rav in Satmar. He was just uh, the Rav in Karai in Romania. And to become the chief rabbi of Jerusalem is a big deal. Okay. Uh, because that would have basically meant him being the leader of the old Yishuv, in the sense that Rav Kook, as the chief rabbi of Palestine, was a new position established by the British, a modernish office, whereas the, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem was, was a, a pre-existing position from, from the days of Shmuel Salant. Uh, that represents the old Yishuv. Um, so that, that effort failed. In any event, 1934 he goes to Satmar. In 1936, his wife Chava died. Now, Chava had three children with Rabbi Yoel, three daughters. One died in childbirth. Another died shortly after marrying in 1931 and herself didn't have any children. So the only uh, uh, offspring he had left was his daughter, Chaya Reza, uh, who herself never had children and died in 1953. So although we're not up to that part of the story just yet, you should know Rabbi Yoel had no grandchildren and had no surviving children which is why the, the uh, succession issues in 1979 became a little bit complicated, uh, with ultimately the, the person being selected not being an ideal choice. So, what happens? Rabbi Ol has to remarry. And this is a great strategic decision. How old is he at this point? In 1937, he is a 50-year-old man. He's a widower at, at age of 49, and a year later he's 50, and he remarries. He marries Alta Fager. Her name was Alta Fager. How old was she? 25. So, so the Alta was, 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 was misleading. So she's 25. What is obviously the intention? That she should bear a child, preferably a son, who will take over the family business. It never happened. They never had children. But the fact that he married her, and she was one tough cookie... Uh, was very important because when he has a stroke later in life, she will take over like uh, President Wilson's wife took over the last two years of his presidency. She is a very strong-minded woman, and as we get to the end of the story, we'll see how she plays a role in the later history of Satmar in America. Okay, So, in 1937, another important thing happens. Rabiol was appointed to the executive committee of the Central Bureau of Orthodox Kihilot in Hungary, Romania. This basically means that he is the, the chief rabbi, so to speak, of the irredentists, of the ones who don't want to accommodate anyone else. So for the Haredim, as we would call them today, uh, of, of Hungary, Romania, he is now the, the boss. And this was a dangerous time in Romania. There were numerous clausus laws, anti-Semitic legislation passed by the government in 37 and 38. Uh, well in advance of uh, the start of World War II. So having nothing to do with the German Nazis, just uh, you know, widespread anti-Semitic uh, agitation all throughout Central and, and, and Eastern Europe. So it's not, it's not a good time. And at one point in late 1937, shortly after remarrying, uh, Rabiol um, took a little trip to Czechoslovakia. And his Hasidim and the people in Satmar tried to stop him from going because they suspected that he was going to leave and never come back knowing that his tendency to try to escape da- you know, dangerous situations and flee, you know, concern himself for his personal safety more than anything else. So he went, but he only went briefly. Then he came back. Rabiol opposed any measure of Jewish self-defense 
that could be seen by the government as uh, antagonistic to the regime. So all over Eastern Europe and Central Europe, there are these Jewish self-defense brigades being established to defend against the, the, the SS and the SA in Germany, against the Arrow Cross in Hungary, the Iron Guard in Romania, the, 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 the Polish uh, goons in Warsaw. I mean, all over Central and Eastern Europe, the, the goyim are on the attack. I don't mean genocidal attack yet, but just, you know, bl- violence, blood in the streets. So what do Jews do? The Beitar youth, mo- youth movement, the Koach movement, the, the sports movement, they say Jews should, should pick up some, some, some uh, low, low-level weapons and their fists and fight back. Yol says, no, no training whatsoever, no fighting back. Okay. He also uh, even opposed the calling of a Tainus Tzibur, a public fast, in the face of anti-Semitic legislation, lest it be seen uh, by the government as the Jewish community showing its awareness that they are victims. In other words, never concede any, any, at any point that you know you're a victim. Pretend as though all is well. And then when things get really bad, rely upon God's salvation. But no, no active measures and even no passive measures of a religious nature to defend ourselves. Okay. Um, now, Rabbi Yol opposed the Central Bureau of uh, Orthodox Kehilot joining with the Aguda. This was a long-standing machlokas between the Aguda and the hardliners of Hungary, Romania. The Aguda was established in 1912 uh, with its first Knesset Gedola in 1923. And the Aguda was a combination of the Polish Hasidim and the Polish traditional Orthodox with the German Orthodox, the, the Rav Hirsch crowd, the Breuer crowd, and even the Rav Hildesheimer crowd. But that Aguda did not believe in, um, well, I'll put it this way. The Aguda did not object to participation in broader communal endeavors of Jewish self-defense or of the building up of Eretz Yisrael. Even though they were not Zionist, they, they did not object to people moving to Eretz Yisrael and the building up of the Yishuv. Certainly the old Yishuv, but even to a lesser extent the new Yishuv. Whereas the, the hardliners in Hungary, Romania, opposed Aliyah, supposedly even for individuals and certainly for groups, and they opposed any measure of uh, active defense, whether physical defense or political diplomatic. So Rabbi hates the Aguda. As much as he hates the Zionists, he hates the Aguda even more, because the Aguda looks kosher. Whereas the Zionists, everyone knows their trade. So it's like, uh, you know, your enemy is your enemy, but the one that might not look like your enemy is even more dangerous. So he opposed joining with the Aguda, even though the Aguda had very strong connections in the West, including the United States, for fundraising purposes to secure rescue uh, options for Jews who were, who were stuck under the Nazis. So now here you have a situation where you could raise money, you could save lives, all it takes is cooperating with your ideological adversaries, and even that he couldn't do. Wouldn't do it. So, the further irony is that the Aguda eventually is responsible for saving Rabiola's life, together with the Zionists, on the Kastner train. Okay. Rabiola tried to get an Aliyah certificate in the early stages of the war. 
bear in mind that as of 1940, Siget and Satmar and that whole region of Transylvania is no longer in Romania. It is now in Hungary. Why is it in Hungary? Because the Hungarians were rewarded for their alliance with the Nazis to expand their borders to include areas that had lost after the Versailles Treaty. So remember, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of politics involved in relation to who lost World War I and their, their belligerent attitudes going into World War II. So under the Hungarians, uh, life is actually worse than it was under the Romanians, but at least you weren't being thrown into ghettos because the Nazis weren't around. Not until March 19, 1944, when the Germans invade Hungary. So, for, if you're a Hungarian Jew between 40 and 44, you can get out if you can find somewhere to go. Where are you going to go? Well, America is not an easy place to get into at this point, and even traveling there across war-torn Europe is no simple task. Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael is severely restricted by what? by the White Paper of 1939, which limits things to 15,000 certificates a year. 15,000 certificates when you have millions of people who want to get there. So what are the odds of you getting one? Well, the answer is the odds are a lot greater if you're a prominent rabbi. So if you're a VIP, maybe you'll get one. He tries to get one, and the Zionists refuse to sign off on it unless he renounces his hostility to Zionism. How about that? Well, he refuses. Now, his daughter and son-in-law disavow their father's extremism and get certificates and go to Eretz Israel and move to Yerushalayim. Which you could argue would lead to familial tension uh, later on, assuming everybody survives the war, which they all do, at least in the immediate family. But, as we'll see, uh, they made Shalom, because after the war, Yol does go to Eretz Israel briefly and stays with his daughter and son-in-law for a year. So, then he tries to get a certificate to go to the United States, and other rabbis condemned this. Why would they condemn it? Well, plenty of rabbis preferred to stay with their flock until the, you know, the doom and gloom uh, strikes, and then go with their congregants off to the death camps, even if it means losing their life, being a martyr. And to run away to America when your people are left behind was seen as, uh, if not treasonous, at least... Um, distasteful. So, the next thing is, as Hungary is in the crosshairs of uh, the Wehrmacht, the Germans are about to invade, and it's obvious that they're about to invade, what do you do if you're a Jew, and you want to escape the country? So, one option is to to flee to Romania, to go across the border, but you have to not get caught. Now, 10,000 Jews fled before the German invasion. They were smart enough to plan ahead and to figure out where they were going to go to, to, to secure passage and a place to stay. But Rabbi Oil didn't, didn't like to plan ahead. He said, you know, we'll, we'll wait it out till the bitter end. But just before the bitter end, he'll make a, a quick decision to escape. On uh, May 3rd, with... Um, the Jews of, of Satmar about to be herded into a ghetto, so Rabiol runs, runs away. And he's arrested at uh, Cluj, at Klosenberg. Why? Because um, there was an escape plan to go to the Romanian border, and they actually had it all worked out. 
and there was a van full, an ambulance full of people who was going to be saved this way, including Rob Yol's immediate family and his, his Gaboyim. But the one guy who knew the directions, once you got to Klosenberg, to the, to the safe house, they forgot him at the, at the station. So it was like the most botched plan in history, and it cost people their lives, because although Yol will eventually survive the war, some of the others didn't. They got arrested, they were put into the, into the Klosenberg ghetto, and never, never to, to come out alive. So, at this point, it's now late in May, and uh, the Cluj ghetto was, was very harsh. So the, the rabbi, Rabbi Yoel, he asked for a transfer back to Satmar, to the Satmar ghetto, because in Cluj they were living in tents, whereas in Satmar they had residential buildings. Uh, his request was denied. While he was in the ghetto, he kept a very low profile. He refused to daven in the main minion, and he even refused to speak to the Klosenberger rabbi. He just wanted nothing to do with, with, with public involvement. He kept himself you know, as low as possible. He also refused to eat the food and had his wife uh, secure potatoes for him and, they, and she prepared them in a separate kitchen. Now, um, the next stage is the Kastner train. Kastner, who, who will, will devote a whole session just to him and his fate and his assassination, whether he's a hero or he's a villain, was arranging with, the, with Eichmann for, this, for the release of 1,649 Jews uh, to go to a neutral country, presumably Switzerland. And although he's a Zionist, a, 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 a mainstream uh, general Zionist, and not an Orthodox Jew, and not a, certainly not a Hasid, somehow, some way, uh, through the good offices of the Aguda and friends of the, of the Rebbe, Rabbi Yoel, Rabbi Yoel's name was added to the list. At, uh, towards the end of its, uh, the, co- the compiling of the list. And he agreed to go on the train knowing, at least at that point, that no other rabbis and no other Satmar Hasidim were going to be included. So he was leaving all his colleagues and his, his flock behind. The train leaves um, on June 10th for Budapest. And he stays in Budapest for um, basically a month. And then the train goes further, thinking they were going to go to a neutral country, Switzerland, actually possibly Spain. The theory was they were going to go all the way to Spain. But doesn't happen. On July 10th, the train ends up at Bergen-Belsen. Now, Bergen-Belsen was not a, not a great place. It was a concentration camp. People died there. Many thousands of people died there. It wasn't a death camp, but it was a concentration camp, and uh, this was not, not the ex- what was expected for those who, who had bribed their way to freedom. So, huh? so uh, Kastner, realizing that something has gone wrong, goes back to Eichmann to negotiate the release of those who, had, who were supposed to go to freedom. And one group is released in August. But Rabbi Yol wasn't part of that group. He remained at Bergen-Belsen until December 4th. While he was there, he kept a low profile. Again, wouldn't daven with the rest of the, the crowd. He wore a, 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 a wrap around his face that no one should know that he has a rabbinical beard. He pretended he had a toothache. Um, he was very machmir. He wouldn't eat the food. And so he would have his wife somehow prepare separate food for him. And he even criticized other rabbis who were in Bergen-Belsen for being too, too makil in their uh, postgating of Shilas on Kashris and other issues. So even in the, under the most dire of circumstance, he was a machmir of the machmir. Then, on December 7th, uh, it's time for him to go free. 
George Montello, who was the El Salvadoran ambassador in Geneva, and a Jew, a, a, a Jew from Eastern Europe who had moved to South America, um, he arranges for special perks for Abiyoel, even in the concentration camp, that he should have extra food, extra medicine, and then when the train gets to Switzerland, he meets him at the border. And there's a very famous picture of, of uh, Montello shaking hands with Rabiol as Rabiol crosses the border into Switzerland. And he, there he arranged uh, that Rabiol should not be put in an internment camp with the rest of the passengers, but rather would stay in a luxurious apartment in uh, Geneva. So that's where Rabiol rides out the rest of the war. Actually, I've, I met... Montello's son, Enrico, uh, Enrico Montello, uh, who was honored uh, at Parkey Synagogue uh, at one of the, the Holocaust Remembrance Observances. Uh, you might have even been there for one of those Shabbosim. But Montello's son was there, and they gave him a little, little certificate for his efforts. And so the war comes to an end. What happened in the war? Well, from the perspective of Hungarian Romanian Jewry, many, many people died. About half of Hungarian Jewry died. 400,000 out of 800,000. It would have been a lot worse, except for the fact that Hungary was invaded fairly late in the war, and even in the industrial genocide at Auschwitz, was only able to uh, accomplish whatever it could accomplish. And so plenty of Hungarian Jews survived. Some went into hiding, some just never were deported, whatever it might be. But as for the Jews of Transylvania, for Satmar, almost all of them died. Uh, the, the, the Satmar ghetto was, was liquidated and people were sent to the death camp. That was it. So the question is, of course, did Reb Yoel know about the final solution before the invasion of Hungary? The answer to that question is undoubtedly yes. As early as 1943, the leadership of Hungarian Jewry, including Reb Yoel, were familiar with the death camps and the fate of Polish Jewry. How they knew? Because they were getting information fed to them by official channels. So this is a further criticism that is leveled against Rabiol, that despite being more aware of the reality of the war vis-a-vis Jewry than your average Jew, he nonetheless didn't say anything to his flock to get them to move faster. That he objected to them leaving Europe, was opposed to, to Aliyah of Palestine, uh, despite knowing that uh, the impending doom. Okay. Uh, now, what happened in the immediate aftermath of the war? So, out of Switzerland, in the summer of 1945, Rabiol tries to rescue children who were sent to Christian homes uh, to, to survive the war. And he wants to you know, take them out of the Christian homes and bring them back to Judaism, which is a very admirable goal. And Chief Rabbi Herzog in Eretz Yisrael also uh, makes that one of his priorities, to, to rescue Jewish children. Um, that could make somebody a hero. The problem is Rabiol's ideology interfered with his ability to do good work. The Joint Distribution Committee, which was the chief mover uh, and organization funder of, the, of these efforts, did not like the fact that Rabiol wanted all the children he saved to grow up as Haredim, as opposed to just being you know, regular nominally religious Jews or secular Jews or whatever they were before the war started. He wanted to save people to make them Haredim. So that, that they didn't like. And even the Aguda, he couldn't play well with because of historic antagonisms. And the Aguda was also paying money, Vad uh, Hatzalah, to save kids from the, from the Christian homes. So because of his inability to play well with others, he accomplished effectively nothing. Okay. He moved to 
Eretz Yisroel in uh, September of 1945. What happened? He left uh, uh, Switzerland. He goes to Italy and takes a boat to Haifa where he lands on September 2nd. And where does he go? To Yerushalayim to stay with his daughter and son-in-law. And he tries to establish the Mosdos, the institutions of Satmar, in Yerushalayim. Effectively, what he's trying to do is recreate irredentist Hungarian orthodoxy and Hasidus in the Holy Land. But he fails. He fails miserably and leaves bankrupt a year later. Why? Because he didn't understand the intra-orthodox politics of Eretz Yisrael. He was a newcomer on the scene, but there were other people who were already there who were much more important than him. At least at that point. Who was there in 1945 in Eretz Yisrael, in Yerushalayim, or at least in Eretz Yisrael? So Rav Herzog is the chief rabbi, prominent figure, the successor to Rav Kook, okay? The Chazon Ish came to Eretz Yisrael in 1933 as the leader of non-Hasidic orthodoxy in Bnei Brak. There were other Gedolim from, from the Chevron Yeshiva, uh, from the, from the, the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. I mean, remember that who came to Eretz Yisrael in the 20s and 30s? Many of the Yeshivas left Eastern Europe they went to, to first to Hebron, and after the massacre, they went back to Yerushalayim. But there were Gedolei Hador. There were Rashi Yeshiva Gedolei Hador, and some Hasidus in Eretz Yisrael well before Satmar got there. So he's not the, the, the heavyweight that he thinks he is. He fails, he leaves. Where does he go? He goes to Brooklyn, to Williamsburg. What is Williamsburg in 1946? What kind of a neighborhood is it? It's a modern Orthodox neighborhood with Yeshiva Yitzchayim. I mean, on 13... Uh, 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 well, Yeshiva Yitzchayim is Borough Park, but you had other, other Yeshivas in Williamsburg. Um, and you had some Hasidus who came in the 30s, but basically not much. It was mostly a Jewish neighborhood, predominantly Shomer Shabbos, but not of, a, of, of an extreme variety. So he wants to transform the neighborhood. And he does, very successfully. By the way, what day does he come to, to New York? Do you know? The second day of Rosh Hashanah on the SS Volcania, September 27, 1946. And because it's Rosh Hashanah, he can't get off the boat. So he has to stay on the boat until after Tzitzit uh, And then he gets off the boat. Okay. Uh, in America, what does he do? So, in 1948, he establishes the Yetev Lev congregation, named after his grandfather, the Yetev Lev, uh, who had been the Rev of Sigit. And... He uh, establishes in 1952 the bylaws of the congregation, which make him not a paid employee, but rather the supreme religious arbiter of all, of all matters in, in, this, in the Satmar community. This was a brilliant move on his part, because it means he can't be fired, because he doesn't collect a paycheck. He's the boss, he's a religious authority, everybody has to respect him, but you can't fire him. So that uh, is his um, core constituency at the local level. But he does a few other things. In 1953, he's appointed the president and then later the Av Beisdin of the Eidah Haredis of Eretz Yisrael, of Yerushalayim, but of Eretz Yisrael generally. Why do they appoint him if he doesn't even live in Israel? The answer is that the Eidah Haredis is the, the, the holdover organization from the old Yishuv. But the old Yishuv is insignificant and meaningless after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. It has a constituency among the Haredim, but not much of one anymore, and the money that supported it, the chalukah, the charity, where did that come from all these years? It came from Eastern Europe. 
But is there an Eastern Europe anymore? No, everybody's gotten killed. There's no more Eastern, Europe, Eastern European Jewry. So where's the money going to come from? American Jewry, American Haredim and uh, Haredi uh, sympathizers. So Rabbi Yoel is the one who funds them. Therefore, they make him the Av Bezdin and the president. Honor, honorific roles. Okay. But he does something else. In 1955, he establishes the CRC, not the Chicago Rabbinical Council, but the Central Rabbinical Congress, the Yisachta Sarabonim, which is uh, uh, the conglomeration of all the old-fashioned Romanian, Hungarian, and even some Polish rabbis who opposed Zionism, opposed modernity, college education, secular education, all those who were anti-anti-anti and feel that the Aguda is too soft. For them, there's the CRC, the Central Rabbinical Congress, with Rabiol at the head. So he makes himself the the the, the, uh, the Hador for all those to the right of the Aguda. And that he would remain for the rest of his life. He really he, he cornered the market on that crowd. Okay. In nineteen um, in the early nineteen sixties, you see we're running out of time. In the early nineteen sixties Rabbi Oil realizes that Williamsburg is filthy and dirty and, and, and it's not a good neighborhood. Uh, and you need to be out in the country, the clean air, the fresh air. Remember, he's, he's into hygiene, personal hygiene. So they're looking upstate for a place, just like Ravar and Cutler moved to Lakewood, away from the city. You want to be in the, in the countryside where you're removed from all the tumma. So they're looking for a place. Finally, in 1974, they start sending Satmar families to, to Monroe. And in 1977... Uh, they secede from Monroe and establish Curious Joel as an independent municipality uh, w- uh, under Satmar auspices, with all the attendant problems of separation in church and state that will follow for the next 38 years. Okay. Now, in 1968, Rabiola has a stroke, and he ceases to be uh, the vibrant figure that he had been. Now, he's 81 years old at this point, so you can't blame him. But for the next 11 years of his life, the, Altafega, the wife, uh, she really runs the, calls the shots. Now, she had been very important already from the 50s with Biker Cholom. She personally established the Satmar Biker Cholom, which to this day does tremendous work on the Upper East Side in the hospitals. I personally, with my own eyes, saw the good work that they do uh, for Jews of all stripes. And that, that's the one area of, of uh, civic involvement that gives Satmar a shame tov in the wider community as opposed to the shame ra that they have and among the other elements of Jewry for their irredentism and for their anti-Zionism. So, what were the problems associated with Rabiol's lack of a son, of progeny? Answer is this. When he died in 1979, the question is, who would take over? So, he had no sons. He had no grandsons. He had a nephew. Who was his nephew? Remember, his older brother had died young, but was the Rav of Sigit. And the 14-year-old nephew became the Rav of Sigit. He died in the Holocaust at the age of 30. But there was another brother who moved to Eretz Yisrael and, and survived the war, Rav Moshe. Rav Moshe was born in 1914. Uh, what happened to Rav Moshe? So, right after the war, Rav Moshe went back to Sigit and reestablished a Hasidic community. Not everyone left Eastern Europe. Some people went back to Hungary, went back to Romania, and there was religious life Hasidus for, uh, into the 50s and even into the 60s, despite being under the, uh, under the communists. So some rabbis went back. Rabbi Yoel didn't. Rabbi Yoel could have. He could have gone back to Satmar 
1945, 1946. And in fact, some are critical of him that he didn't go back to Satmar because there were some Jews still there. And they feel that it was his responsibility to go back and provide religious life for them. Okay, but Rav Moshe went back to Sigit. He stayed there briefly, then spent time a little, a little bit near Eretz Yisrael, and then went to New York, and ended up in Borough Park. And for 30 years, he was the Sigit Rav in Borough Park. So now in 1979, what, who, who's going to be the Satmar Rebbe? Well, the choice was the Sigidarov. But was it a good choice? This man, Moshe Teitelbaum, although he's a Rebbe, he hadn't been in Satmar in 30 years. He hadn't been part of the community. He wasn't as extreme as his uncle had been. He was relatively soft by comparison. And so there were some who wanted to have a different candidate. Now, there's a story, and I can't verify the story, uh, with any uh, documentary evidence other than the say-so of the person involved. But Rav, um, Rav Weiss, Rav Yosef Weiss, the Rosh Yeshiva of YU, who died earlier this year, and who was my Rebbe for Yoridea when I was in Smicha, he claimed that he was a candidate to become the Satma Rebbe. Because he was from Nanush, which wasn't far away, and he wore a kapata, and he was a Rosh Yeshiva, and he was a big scholar, a much bigger scholar than, than Rav Moshe Teitelbaum ever was, and that he was a candidate to be the Satma Rebbe. But they, but they didn't pick him because it's pasnished for the Rosh Yeshiva of Wayu to be the Satma Rebbe. So, now I can't confirm that story other than the Rav Weiss told me that to my face when I was in class 13 years ago. Okay. In the end, they picked Moshe. And a year after, uh, on Yol's first yard site, he became the Rebbe. But what happened? Altafega didn't like him. Altafega wanted to be the Rebbetson. She was the Rebbetson. So the B'nai Yoel, the B'nai Yoel, were loyal to Yoel in death, in the sense that they were loyal to the Rebbetson, and rejected the leadership of Moshe Teitelbaum. And another reason why the B'nai Yoel were, were so fiery against the establishment, the new establishment, was because Rav Moshe appointed his son Rav Aaron as the rabbi in Kiryas Yoel in 1980, as soon as he took over. And Rav Aaron, who is still in Kiryas Yoel to this day and is one of the two computer, com- competitors for the throne, is not a very well-liked man. Even back then, at the age of 30-whatever, uh, 33, he was, uh, uh, when he was appointed, appointed as rabbi of the town, people didn't like him. So the B'nai Yoel rejected his authority. And they, they stuck with the Rebetzin until she passed away in 2001, at the ripe old age of uh, 90, I think. So that was the story, uh, the posthumous story of Satmar Hasidus. Uh, I'm not really sure. Maybe that, that constituency kind of fizzled out. Uh, or they went back to, to Brooklyn, to Williamsburg, yeah. Well, the history never came back to haunt him. Didn't people know that he had left his flock? Okay, all right. So in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the few minutes we have left, let's address all those points. So his opinions about the Holocaust were that he blamed Zionism for the Holocaust, that Zionism was a denial of God's saving power, the Zionists with the Erev Rav, the Aguda, are the collaborators, and the Zionists provoked Hitler, and that's why the whole thing is their fault, and they wouldn't save Haredim. These are, these are the standard talking points. But they saved him, for which he never expressed any degree of, of uh, thanks. He never uh, w- was in contact by uh, face-to-face or by letter. With, I, get a fan. With, I get an impression you're not a big fan of the 
Okay. Well, well, well. So he never thanked Kastner. He never, he never thanked Rav Herzog. He never thanked anyone who was involved in the, uh, of Levin or of Porush from the Aguda. Never thanked them. Okay. So did it come back to haunt him? The answer is that in the hagiography of Satmar, there are always excuses for his behavior. Um, in that maybe he felt he, uh, uh, that, that he was right in not trying to antagonize the Romanian and Hungarian authorities, that he didn't know what was happening in Poland and so that he couldn't be faulted for not telling his flock, or that even if he did know, he didn't want to cause panic since there was no immediate solution available, or that he never objected to Aliyah for individuals, only for, for, for groups to go uh, uh, you know, en masse to Eretz Israel, and that he wouldn't have put an obstacle in the way of anyone who wanted to get an Aliyah certificate. There's all sorts of revisionism to try to make up for the fact that during the war, in the, in the lead up to the war and during the war, he uh, failed. And... And as for him hiding himself and wearing a, a, a rag so that you wouldn't know who he was in the concentration camp, but because he thought that he would uh, be immediately killed if he were identified, all sorts of excuses. When you compare that to the to the the leadership of, let's say, Nachum Zemba, or even the liberal Rabbi Leo Beck, who basically at Theresienstadt knocked on the door of the of the of the head of the Gestapo and said, "I'm the rabbi here." You know, to, the, to the point that they beat him up and almost killed him. But that was leadership, you know, courage. Obviously, Rabiol didn't have that. That's, that's, he didn't evince that. Now, in the, in the aftermath of the war, what about like the uh, post-1945 or post-1948? How do, how do his apologists handle his behavior then in terms of his attack on the Aguda, his attack on the, on his, uh, on the, the Aguda Sarabonim in America? The argument is always that, well, they were too soft on the issues, and that if you really wanted to preserve the ways of Yisrael Saba, the old ways of Judaism, you had to be as extreme as possible, and that the, uh, the Aguda was failing, and certainly the Zionists were failing, and only Satmar was, uh, and, you know, the other Hasidic sects of that variety were doing the right thing. And now they could point to their numerical success. Remember, Satmar was a relatively small town in Europe, even Sigit, how many Jews were there? Whereas how many Satmar are there today? 100,000, 120,000. So the numbers game allowed the apologist to say, we were successful, look what we did right, and it's all thanks to Rebiol. So he's a hero. How do you explain that he was a deserter? Uh, so that's hard to explain. Even, even for the apologist, that's very hard to explain. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that leads uh, elements of the community to reject the hagiography and reject the, uh, what they're spoon-fed as a child is when they learn about the lack of hakara satov that Rabiol ha- had or didn't have for those who saved his life. Uh, that puts a sour taste in the mouth of a lot of people, even people who, were, who grew up on the propaganda. So, uh, you're right, it's not easy to explain, and it can lead people astray. Okay, so we'll stop here.